that a great video? I mean, whoever made that is uh, just just awesome. So shout out to uh, the church that made that and made that available online. Good morning, church family. Happy Sunday. How are you doing out there in internet land? Uh, my name is Chris. Uh, big welcome to you if you're watching for the first time or tuning in uh, from uh, somewhere else, you're not a part of our church family. I just want you to feel uh, welcomed. Uh, and I'm one of the leaders here. Love that I get to be a part of this church. Uh, we are in week three of our Advent series. And so I'm rocking a new Christmas t-shirt. Merry Christmas, you filthy animal. This is a movie reference. If you can uh, name the movie in the chat, first person to name the movie in one of the chats, uh, Nathan will give you $50 cold, hard cash out of his own pocket uh, to whoever gets it first. Uh, so Anyway, week three of our Advent series called A Glorious Disruption. And Advent is the season for us where we, uh, we look forward to Jesus. We're preparing ourselves for the coming of Jesus. So traditionally, this has meant that we are preparing ourselves for Christmas. But as the church, we are in this Adventing season where we are longing for the second coming of Jesus. And the series is called A Glorious Disruption because we've been going through these stories leading up to the birth of Jesus where there's, there's actual disruptions, where there's these disruptive moments in people's lives. And so today, uh, if you have your Bibles, go to Luke chapter one. We are going to look at a story that is uh, very familiar probably to uh, anybody who's been around church for any length of time. But even if you're new to church, this is... Uh, a story that you've probably heard before. We're going to look at the story of Mary. Uh, last week we were introduced to Mary, but this week we're going to take a deep dive into her story and her encounter in this whole um, kind of story as it's unfolding leading up to the birth of Jesus. Now, when it comes to Mary, before we get to the text, when it comes to Mary, it's probably worth mentioning that she is perhaps the most famous, uh, uh, most celebrated woman in all of human history. Uh, she, she has uh, been talked about more than just about any other woman. Her picture has been painted more than any other woman. Uh, she, she's just very, very, very well-known all throughout human history. And part of that is because of where she sits within the, the grander story of the, the redemptive story that God tells through the scriptures. So if you kind of go back to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter one and two, we get this picture of God creating the cosmos and he creates humanity, places Adam and Eve in the garden and gives them a particular uh, value, particular dignity and worth because they are made in his image and likeness. And they have intimacy with God. They have intimacy with one another, intimacy with creation. The world is good. It's as it should, as it should be. But in Genesis chapter three, something happens. Uh, Satan comes into the garden in the form of a serpent. He tempts Eve and tempts Adam. They rebel against God. Sin enters into the equation. And we get this beautiful picture of God. Uh, so often when we think of God, we think of him as uh, somebody who's angry with us, looking for reasons to uh, smite us when we do something wrong. But that's never the picture that's painted for us of him in the Bible. I, and that, that might shock some of you. Maybe you've never heard that before. But even at the very beginning of the story of God, in Genesis chapter three, when Adam and Eve sinned, God comes and pursues them. He doesn't just yell at them from, uh, from heaven and smite them or strike them with lightning like an angry parent yelling down into the basement at their children who are being disobedient, but he actually pursues them. He actually enters in. He actually comes after them. And there's this uh, verse that, uh, that is so beautiful. It's, it's, it's a foreshadowing of what is going to come. But in Genesis chapter three, verse 15, when God is coming to kind of to take care of what has taken place in the garden. He preaches uh, condemnation over the serpent. And this is what he says in Genesis chapter three, verse uh, 15. 
He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, you being the serpent, you and the woman, the, the woman being Eve, and between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head. So the offspring of the woman will crush the head of the serpent and you will strike his heel. So in the process of this offspring of Eve crushing the head of the serpent, the heel of the offspring will be, will be struck. It will be bruised. And we get this beautiful but interesting picture. I mean, just think about this with me for a second, okay? So, so what is God's answer to human sin? What is his answer to death and to rebellion? It's that a son will come. A son will come. So counter how we would deal with brokenness. So opposite of how we would deal with the problems that ail humanity. Yet this is what God does. Now you fast forward to Luke chapter one, where we find ourselves and what do we see? This is all foreshadow for the person work of Jesus. This is all a foreshadow. Genesis chapter three, verse 15 is uh, pointing rather forward to Jesus. He is the one who is going to come. He is the one who is going to be born of Mary, but he's the son of God who's going to come He's going to come and solve the sin problem of the world. He's going to go to the cross. He's going to have his heel bruised. His, his, he's, going to, um, he's going to have his heel striked, if you will, as he takes care of evil in the form of his, his side being pierced, his hands and his feet being pierced. But his, more than that, his body being broken, his blood being shed, his, his spirit being separated, his actual identity as a member of the Trinity being separated from God the Father as he experiences all the brokenness, all the sin of all time placed on his shoulders. This is the story. And Mary finds herself in this story. And so this is where we pick up. So if you have your Bibles, Luke chapter one, starting in uh, verse 26, it says this, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Now, if you were with us a couple of weeks ago, we unpacked the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Elizabeth is Mary's sister. And we, we unpacked her story a few weeks ago in this series, worth going back to check out. But look at what says uh, Luke says next, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth in uh, uh, sorry, a town in Galilee. So, so let's stop there for a second, okay? So uh, what we see here is we see that God sends an angel. Now we have a belief here at West Village. We believe what the Bible says. So we believe in angels. We believe in demons. We believe that there's, uh, there's that angels are created beings and some of them are good and they love and serve God. And some of them are evil and they have fallen and they now serve Satan and they are what we would call demons. But here we get a picture of, uh, of an angel. Now there's only two angels that are named all throughout scripture. There's Michael, and there's Gabriel. And the role of the angel was to worship God. It was to serve God. And here we get a picture of an angel serving God. So very, very rare was these appearances where angels would show up in someone's life. So if you got an angel, it was a good day. But there were only two angels that had a name that we are told of. 
And so if you got an angel with a name, it was a really, really good day. So that's what we see here. Gabriel's coming on the scene. So, so what that tells us, what Luke is trying to communicate to us by naming the angel for us is that what's about to take place is actually very significant. And he's going to continue to do this. He's going to continue to give us clues that, that what is taking place is actually really important. So God sends Gabriel the angel and notice where he sends him. It says he sends him to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. Now, what do we know about the town of Nazareth? Well, if it wasn't for the Christmas story, we actually probably wouldn't know anything about Nazareth. Uh, Nazareth is a very unimpressive town. In fact, it's only referenced in the Bible two times in Luke chapter one and in John chapter one. In John chapter one, it's mentioned in a very pejorative sort of way uh, where, where Nathaniel, one of Jesus's disciples actually says, can anything good come from Nazareth? But apart from these two references, there is no mention of Nazareth, not in the Old Testament, not in the New Testament, uh, very uh, none that I was able to discover in any of the ancient writings. Josephus, who's one of uh, the, the the historians of the day, he never mentions the town of Nazareth. It's not mentioned in the Apocrypha. We know nothing about it. The only reason you and I have heard of the town of Nazareth is because it is in the Christmas story. Why is that? Well, it's because Nazareth was a very insignificant town, very small, very unimportant. It was kind of wedged between two uh, two major cities roughly 50 to 100 people. It was probably more like what we would call like a hamlet, not an omelet, a hamlet. Hamlet's like an omelet with ham in it. But just this tiny town, insignificant town, nothing happening there, nothing going on. And yet this is where the angel Gabriel goes. I mean, if you've ever been on a road trip, you know the kind of town I'm talking about. A couple of summers ago, our family made four trips to Alberta, four round trips to Alberta. We put a lot of, a lot of kilometers on the vehicle. Uh, and, and, you know, you kind of figured out where those towns were that you could stop, quickly go to the bathroom, <laughs> grab a Slurpee and a taquito and get back in the car, try not to touch anything. And as you're driving away, you're thinking to yourself, why does anyone actually live here? Like there's so many other places you could live. Why would you live here? Nazareth was that town. It was not the place you went to. It was the place you went through. And so that's interesting, right? It's telling us something. It's telling us something that this is the place that God sends Gabriel the angel. Now hold that thought, okay? Hold that thought because we got to keep moving. We're going to come back to that. It's important, but we're, we're going to come back to that idea in just a second. Now look at what happens next. So the angel goes to, uh, to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, verse 27, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. Now we talked about this last week when we talked about Joseph's story, but uh, the way that... Uh, the way that they did like dating and marriage in the first century, very different than the way that we do dating and marriage now, right? Like they didn't have Facebook. They didn't have the socials. Uh, they didn't have, I'm, I'm getting old. Facebook's for old people, right? Uh, they didn't have, they didn't have Tinder. Is that still a thing, right? No swiping white, uh, right? Rather in the, in the first century, no Snapchat, nothing like that. So there was, there was no like kind of, you know how we do dating, right? It's like hook up, shack up, break up. Not how things went down in the first century. In the first century, mom and dad from the two, uh, you know, the two young people would kind of tell their parents, hey, I'm interested in so-and-so, I'm interested in so-and-so. Mom and dad would get together and it would basically what they would do is they would make a legal binding agreement with one another that these two would be married together. It was, it'd be a pledge that they'd be married together. They would come together. And, and it was essentially, it was a legal union it wasn't quite marriage, but it was more than what we would describe as engagement. In order to end a, this is what they would call a betrothal. In order to end a betrothal, you'd actually have to go and get legally divorced. So this is a pretty significant relationship. Mary and Joseph in a pretty significant relationship. And now look at what it says 
in verse 20, uh, verse 28, or sorry, verse 27. So the, um, so Gabriel goes to Nazareth, town in Galilee, verse 27, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The virgin's name was Mary. Here we are. We meet her. Mary, most famous woman that has ever lived. The woman that has been talked about more than any other woman in all of human history. Here she is. And when it comes to the Christmas story in general, uh, but Mary in particular, uh, often what can happen is we can sort of romanticize what is taking place. I mean, for so many of us, our, our view of the Christmas story, our view of uh, these events and these people and these places has been shaped by movies, by songs, by television. You know, I was, I, I shared on, on the socials, uh, I don't know if it was this week or last week, but um, it was this meme and it was uh, a, a quote from, I believe it's the, the Christmas Carol, Silent Night, right? Uh, the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. And it's like, well, he was a baby. Babies cried, Jesus cried. But we tend to have this picture in our mind of these, these kind of sanitized scenes that were nothing like what was actually happening. And that's so true of our picture of Mary. I mean, I grew up in a, what I would describe as like a, a Christer Catholic family, right? We weren't particularly religious, but we were European. So Catholicism was a part of our family DNA, but we were, I mean, at best Christers, right? Christmas and Easter Catholics, like at best, but we would go from time to time on Easter and Christmas to church. And, and so my view of who Mary was, was, was absolutely fundamentally shaped by those experiences, and so I had this picture in my mind of this kind of like, no pun intended here, but this like gaudy, ornate, like elevated, like floating on clouds kind of person. And so often that's how we can view Mary. That's how we see her. I mean, let me just show you a picture here for just a second because this will resonate with so many of you, right? Here's a picture of Mary and look at her. I mean, she looks like she's probably in her, mid thirties. She's wearing a gold crown. She has like really nice embroidered clothing on. She's holding a baby, which I assume is, is Jesus. He's also wearing a crown. That's, that's interesting. And for some reason they're Scandinavian. What's up with that? I thought they were Middle Eastern, but these pictures start to shape for us how we view the story, how we view Mary. It kind of sanitizes things. And I would argue that it actually robs us of our ability to really grapple with some of the things that God has for us in these stories. Friends, this isn't what Mary was like. This isn't what she was like at all. Mary was most likely illiterate. Um, Mary most likely was a, like a peasant girl. She wouldn't have been wearing a crown or a embroidered uh, gown. She would have been wearing a peasant dress. She would have had to go and fetch water. She would have had to collect wood for her parents' fireplace to keep it warm. She didn't have a throne or a crown. She was humble. She was poor. Nobody knew who she was. She was insignificant. She wasn't in her mid-30s. 
Scholars will tell you that a betrothal like the one between Mary and Joseph could have started as young as 12, but most likely 13, 14 years old. Now just think about that with me for a second. 13, 14 years old, around the age of your average middle school girl. I don't know if you have daughters. I don't know if you are around daughters very often. I have the privilege of raising a middle school girl who would have been right around the age of Mary. Let me show you a picture of my sweet baby girl, Emily. This is my daughter, Emily. She likes to read books. She likes to giggle. She likes to wrestle with her brother. She has three older brothers, so she's a pretty tough chica. She likes to Marco Polo with her cousin in Alberta. She likes to go to Starbucks. She's just an average middle school girl. Special to me, of course. But this is Mary. Let that sink in for just a minute. We won't, we won't let Emily have data on her cell phone. <laughs> and it's this Mary that is being approached by an angel, as we'll see in just a second, is going to be told that she is going to give birth to the Son of God. It feels different now, doesn't it? The shine and the sheen of the story kind of goes away, doesn't it? She's not 30. She's not perfect. She's not glowing. She's probably scared. Nervous. Confused. Uncertain. Afraid. That's Mary. So this angel comes to this Mary. Look at, look at what he says. The angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored. If you're a Bible underliner, underline that phrase, highly favored. It's going to come up a couple of times in this section of scripture. Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his word. She was concerned, right? She's a junior high girl. What's going on? There's an angel. I'm scared. This makes sense. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid. Mary, you have found favor. There it is again, favor. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus and he will be great and he will be called son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever and his kingdom will never end. So the angel comes to Mary, this junior high girl, this simple peasant girl. And he says, Mary, you are highly favored. You have found favor. 
Now, when the angel comes to Mary, I want you just to think about this with me for a second. In light of what we know of who Mary is, what is it about Mary that qualifies her to do the job that she's just been told that she is going to do? Right? Is it, if you have this picture in your mind of Mary, like the, the first photo that I showed you, then yes, of course, this would make sense. This would be the person that you would pick to come and do the job that the angel has just described that Mary is to do. But that's not what Mary is like. Mary is like, she's simple. She's normal. She's average. She's little. <laughs> she's scared. She's frightened. And yet the angel comes and says, Mary, you have found favor. Now, now let's just unpack that phrase for a second or that, that concept, this idea, right? Because it's one that we find all throughout scripture. And, and this is the idea of favor is the idea of grace. Another way to translate that is you have found grace or you have, you are highly, you have received grace. You have received a high amount of grace in the eyes of God. Grace is this idea of unearned, undeserved, unmerited love that has been granted, not because you have done something, but because God is good. And so we have these two pictures of Mary. On one hand, we have this picture of Mary that is this elevated status, this wonderful person. And then we have this humble peasant over here. Now think about this with me for a second. Who needs grace in that situation? Well, of course, it's the humble peasant. It's the one who, who doesn't have an elevated status. It's the one who, who isn't, uh, doesn't have their life all figured out. And, and it's to that Mary that the God of the universe sends the angel Gabriel to say, I have a task for you. And in this, we get this wonderful picture of the grace of God. Just think about this again. Humble Mary in humble Nazareth. This is who God chooses. And we have this this idea in our mind of the way that God works is that he looks at us from the outside in and he wants us to clean ourselves up on the outside before we can actually receive his love and his grace and his mercy. And what we see here in the Christmas story is that nothing could be further from the truth. Where does God go? He goes to a nothing town called Nazareth. He could have gone anywhere, but he goes to Nazareth. Who does he come to? He comes to this humble, unsuspecting, undeserving, undeserving rather, peasant girl, Mary. And he says, it's you who are highly favored. And for so many of us, we feel like we have to do something to earn the love of God, to earn the grace of God, to earn the favor of God. And we're trying so hard to please God. We're trying so hard to look good, to be good, to to appeal to him so that he will somehow choose us. Friends, God's saying, that's not what I'm like. What qualified Mary to do the job that she was going to do? It wasn't her resume. It wasn't her achievements. It wasn't that she came from noble heritage. It wasn't that she had influence or significance or or wealth or prestige. It was simply because God said so. It, It was simply because God granted her his grace. That's how he works. That's what he's like. Just like in Genesis chapter one and two, when Adam and Eve sin and rebel, or Genesis chapter three, rather, where Adam and Eve sin and rebel against God, what does he do? He humbly pursues. He comes in and takes responsibility for their brokenness. And here, what we get a picture of is a God 
God who loves us so much that he comes after us. He pursues us. He sends the angel to Mary. And that's all a picture of what? The Christmas story, which is what? Jesus coming from heaven to earth. See, religion tells you that you have to do something to make yourself into something. Religion, religion tells you that what you need to do is you, you need to earn the love and the favor of God. That's why people do the things that they do, right? Uh, that's why people go to church. That's why people pray. That's why people give to charities. That's why people try really hard to be good. I mean, right now, the season we find ourselves in, that's why people want to obey the rules. I mean, some of it is because it's rules and there's fines and stuff like that. And some of it's health oriented, but so much of it is social pressure, right? You're afraid of what other people are going to think of you. If I, if I get caught not wearing a mask or doing this, what's going to happen? So I want to have this outward appearance of good, but that's not the way that God works. God sees through the facade. He sees through the outside. He sees through through what you're trying to portray outwardly. And he sees right into the heart. You can't fool him. You can't play games with him. And here's the craziest thing. Here's the crazy thing. It's not like God didn't know that Nazareth was a nothing town and Mary was humble and unimpressive. He knew, he knew, and he still went to her. He, he looks through the facade of what we try and portray on the outside and he sees the brokenness. He sees the brokenness in your heart. He sees the brokenness in my heart and he still comes. Just like he sends Gabriel to Mary, he still comes to us. Just like he sent Jesus to earth, he still pursues you and me. He knows and yet he still loves. It's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful truth that is revealed to us in what we see here. And Mary is told that she is highly favored. You're going to give birth to a son, Mary. Not... <laughs> not because you're qualified, not because you've done something to earn this, not because of some elevated status you've achieved, but because I am going to prepare you for this. I am going to do the work. And then look at what happens next. Verse 34, Mary asks a question and it's a good question, right? Look at what she says. She says, how will this be since I am still a virgin? That's a good question, right? Mary's sitting there. The angel's like, hey, you're a virgin. You're going to have a baby. Mary's like, I'm not sure. I mean, I know I went to public school. I know I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but I know how this stuff works. And that doesn't usually make for good math. Virgin plus nothing equals baby. I don't think so. But I want you to see something deeper here. In, in Zechariah's story two weeks ago, he asked a question and the angel condemned him. And it would be easy to walk away from that and say, oh, I guess Christianity is the kind of worldview, religion, idea, and philosophy where you're not supposed to ask questions. But there's a difference. And I want you to see this, the difference between Zechariah and Mary and how they uh, interact with the angel. Zechariah, his questions were rooted in doubt. He, he was saying to the angel and functionally saying to God, there's no way that you can actually do this. You see, what Mary's saying is, I don't understand. Big difference. Big difference between those two things. 
It's okay to have questions. It's okay to have doubts. It's okay to wonder how things are going to work. Some of you are on a spiritual journey. You're, you're hearing this. You're kind of new to following Jesus. You're trying to figure out you know, what all this means. And you're like, okay, I think I believe a lot of this stuff. I think I believe in Jesus, but I still have questions. That's okay. I have questions. Everybody has questions. Anybody who says they don't have questions isn't telling you the truth. Everybody has questions. And here's what we see within the scriptures is that Christianity is the, the kind of worldview Right? Jesus is the kind of God who says, it's okay to have questions. I'm big enough for your questions. In fact, much of the scriptures are written to people that had questions. They were written for skeptics to be able to answer the questions that skeptics were asking. In fact, I would contend that the Bible probably likely, definitely, let's say definitely, definitely more than any other book asks and answers and tackles some of the most difficult existential questions that humans have been asking since forever. And it tackles them head on and says, hey, let's have a conversation here. Let's dive into this. I've got, you've got questions. I've got answers. That's what Jesus is saying. And so it's okay to have questions. Mary has questions and the angel doesn't condemn her for the questions. She's saying, I believe, I just don't understand. Can you help me understand? And the angels is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me help you. Here's how this is going to work. Look at what the angel says next. Verse 33, the angel answered. Okay. This is some, this is some deep stuff here. Okay. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her own age and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. And then verse 37, for no word of God will ever fail. So the angel says, Mary, I know you're a virgin. You're going to have a baby. Mary's like, can you help me figure this out here? I'm not sure I'm getting this, Gabe. Help me out. Gabe's like, all right, here's the answer. The Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. In other words, God is going to do something miraculous. God is going to do something very, very particular. And, and Luke uses very, very intentional language here to describe what is going to take place that is going to allow for Mary to become pregnant. When he talks about this idea of the Holy Spirit overshadowing her, he's kind of pulling in two directions. One, he's pulling back, uh, back to the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah, where we get this picture of the people of God being filled with the Holy Spirit. But then he's also pointing forward to the book of Acts in the book of Acts chapter one, verse eight, where the Holy Spirit falls upon the people and they are immersed in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so what Luke is saying here, what he's trying to communicate here is that what is going to take place is going to be a supernatural act. God is going to allow you to be pregnant, Mary, through supernatural means, through the power of his Holy Spirit. Now think about this just for a second. What do we know about the power of the Holy Spirit? We know that in, uh, in Genesis chapter one, that the spirit hovered over the water. He was there at the creation of the cosmos. Uh, we know that the Holy Spirit, fast forward the life of Jesus, the apostle Paul tells us that it is the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. 
We know from the teachings of Jesus, but also from the writings of the apostle Paul, that it is the power of the Holy Spirit that, that causes a person's heart to go from death to life. In other words, it allows them to be what Jesus would say in John chapter three, be born again. And so we know that there is creative power that the Holy Spirit has. And so some way in a miraculous way, the Holy Spirit, and we aren't told the specifics or the details, but the Holy Spirit is going to allow Mary to become pregnant with a baby who will become Jesus. It's a miracle. It's an absolute miracle. This is why the incarnation, God becoming flesh, Jesus being born is, is perhaps the greatest moment in all of human history, only to be rivaled by the cross and resurrection, and then only to be rivaled by the second coming of Christ when he restores all things to the way that they are to be. Uh, friends, I just, want you to, I just want to hit pause here for a second on this sermon and just help you understand because it's so easy right now in the moment we find ourselves in just to be so distracted by, by all the other things, right? The, the global pandemic, but then also just the, the hustle and bustle of Christmas to be distracted from what we are actually stopping, pausing to celebrate. Like just drink this in with me for a minute. It's beautiful. It's a miracle. It's a move of God entering into human history that we actually get to to taste and see and, and feel and touch. We get to know God because of what's about to take place. It's good. Now, now let me ask us a question. I think it's a I think it's a good question. It's probably one you should have asked if you haven't asked before of the Christmas story, especially if you've been in the church for any length of time. But the question is this, why, why is a virgin birth uh, such a big deal? In other words, why does Jesus actually have to be born of a virgin? Why, why does Luke go to such painstaking detail here to make it abundantly clear and obvious to us that Mary was a virgin and it was, um, it was her virgin status that remained as Jesus was born, that this birth was a miraculous birth. I mean, interestingly enough, a number of years ago, a former pastor, he's a former pastor, preacher, teacher guy, Rob Bell wrote a book called Velvet Elvis. And in that book, he actually asked the question, he said, well, what would Christianity actually lose if we lost the virgin birth? Well, my contention is, and I think this is what Luke is trying to communicate here in Luke chapter one, I could be wrong, but this is what I think we would actually lose a lot. I think if we thumb our pages through church history, we would discover that we would lose a lot, that there is a lot of our faith and what we believe about Jesus that is tied up and bound up in this idea that Jesus was born of a virgin. So let me just give us two quick reasons why I think it is significant. And there's more, but let me give us two quick reasons why I think it's significant that Jesus was born of a virgin. The first one is this, is that Luke is trying to show us the uniqueness of Jesus. Uh, you got to keep in mind here the context, right? Luke was writing this letter to a particular group of people at a particular time in a particular location. So this is first century Middle Eastern 
kind of worldview. That was kind of the landscape that, that Luke was writing to. So these people would have been, you know, immersed in a myriad of different religious ideas and philosophies. And what Luke is trying to do here is he's trying to actually set apart Jesus from all the other religious leaders and all the other religious ideas that were taking place in that context at that time. Uh, if you're to actually do a little bit of study on Christianity and you start to talk to some skeptics, particularly those who I would say are, are harder to, uh, to uh, hard atheists, hard towards Christianity or hard skeptics of Christianity, what they would say uh, of, of the birth story of Jesus and really of Jesus uh, in general is that there's not a whole lot of uniqueness between his story and the story of many of the other kind of mythical uh, or, you know, deities in the first century. You know, you have, um, you have Horus, you have um, Mithra, you have Dionysus, and, and all of these um, deities had their own virgin birth stories. And actually, I would say this, if a skeptic said that to me or to you, you should say, yeah, you're right. That is true. But again, Luke uses very intentional language to describe the kind of virgin birth that is taking place here. Because in those other worldviews, other religions, other philosophies, what you actually see, and I don't mean to be crude here, okay? I'm just going to kind of give you the facts. Cover the children's ears, though. Um, no West Village kids this morning. Uh, what you actually see is those deities were actually, yes, born of a virgin, but the gods that were involved in the making of those deities actually entered in and had intimate marital type relations. I'm trying to be as PG as I possibly can here with the woman. In other words, intercourse took place. And so when Luke wrote this to this group of people at this time who would have held on to all these different ideas what he's actually doing is he's actually setting Jesus apart from all the different philosophies and religions that existed at the time. In other words, what he's saying is Jesus is different. Jesus is set apart. Jesus is worthy of you paying attention to. Really what he's going to say in his whole book is painting a picture for us of this is that Jesus is actually God. He's God. Uh, he deserves to be worshipped. Uh, there's a, there's an idea floating around, kind of in in our in our modern Western kind of postmodern, I guess, Western society that says all religions basically teach the same thing. All all religious leaders are basically the same. And what Luke is saying is that's not true. That's not true. Not all religions are created equal. Not all truths are created equal. Not all religions teach the same thing. Not all paths lead to the same place. It's not just about the sincerity of your belief that matters, but there's actually a difference between Jesus and everyone else. So this virgin birth is important because it sets Jesus apart. It sets him apart from the different religions, ideologies, and philosophies. There's no other religious leader who can make this claim. Only Jesus is born of a virgin. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. It's God's way, virgin birth is God's way of showing us that Jesus is the only one who can bring about our salvation. 
I mean, that's what we see in Christmas, right? What is Christmas? We talked a little bit about this last week, but it's the celebration of God taking on flesh. This is what we call the, the we, we said last week, we call the hypostatic union that in Christ, we, we see someone who's not 50% God and, and 50% man. We see not someone who's 100% man who, who put away all his, his godness, but he's 100% God and 100% man. And again, we've already talked about this Uh, in this sermon, but you fast forward the life and ministry of Jesus, where does it go? It goes to the cross. And Jesus was very explicit about why he came and why he was going to the cross. He was going to the cross to rescue, redeem humanity, to pay the price for the sins of Genesis chapter three. He was coming to have his heel struck, bruised and crushed the head of the serpent to take care of evil. Okay, but why a virgin birth? because the only one who could actually reconcile humanity back to God would have been the God man. I mean, that's why the angel Gabriel describes him as the son of God, the son of man, because he's not just man. He's not just a good guy. He's God, but he's not just God. He's our representative. He's the perfect sacrifice our sin placed on his shoulders our brokenness given to him and god and man are reconciled we're reconciled jesus gives up his life for us so that we can be reconciled to God. What this angel is saying to Mary, and this is crazy. It's mind blowing. What she's actually saying to Mary is, what he's actually saying to Mary rather is, the baby you are carrying is going to be your savior. It's good news, church. It's good news. And then look at what Mary says in response. I already read it, but I'll read it again. Verse 37, for no word from God will ever fail. Some translations say nothing is impossible with God. So the angel's actually answering Mary's question, right? Mary says, how is this going to be? And, and, and Mary, sa- Mary says, rather, how is this going to be? And the angel says, it's okay. Nothing is impossible with God. In other words, Mary, you don't have to worry about it. God has this. Uh, the God who spoke the word of the world into existence, he has this. And, and the angel just went to great lengths to explain how this is all going to work. Because he even said, your sister who's older and unable to conceive, or, you know, she's in her sixth month of pregnancy. God made that happen. He can do this. The same God who rose Christ from the dead can, can do this. The same God who, who is controlling the cosmos can make this happen. He hears prayers and answers them. He can do this. In other words, Mary, I know you're scared. I know you're frightened. I know you're terrified, but here's what I want you to know that God has this. He has this for no word of God will fail. With God, all things are possible. Some of you, you need to hear that today. You need to hear that, that no matter what you're going through, no matter how scared you are, no matter how uncertain you are about your future, you need to hear 
these words of the angel Gabriel spoken, God has this. He hasn't forgotten you. Some of you are having the worst year you've ever had. And you're wondering, has God forgotten me? And Mary's story is here to encourage you. No, no, he hasn't forgotten you. As I uh, read this week, Pastor Jared Wilson wrote this. He said, this hasn't been a hard year for God. It's been a hard year for us, but it hasn't been a hard year for God. In other words, he knows exactly what he's doing. He's at work. He's working in your life. He will sustain you through whatever you're going through. He will be enough for you. And then look at Mary's response to all of this. Verse 38, I am the Lord's servant. Mary answered, may your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. The simple young lady from a simple town, from a simple heritage, responds with a simple faith. Not a small faith, not an insignificant faith, but a simple faith. Uh, Martin Luther said that faith is perhaps the greatest miracle. The apostle Paul tells us that faith is actually, our ability to even have faith is a, a gift that God grants to us. And in this moment, Mary actually trusts God. She looks out at the world. She looks out at the circumstances. She looks out at everything that's in front of her. And she says, I can't do it, but you can. Some of you are looking out at the world right now and you're thinking, I can't do it. I can't do it. Hear the words of Mary. I'm the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. You're right, you can't do it, friends, but he can. And Christmas is our reminder that God can be trusted. He can be trusted. He has been pursuing you. He will continue to pursue you. He will continue to come after you. But it's not just our reminder that God can be trusted. It's also our invitation to trust him. He's inviting you to trust him. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you love us, that you pursue us, that you're kind and gracious with us, that we have found favor in your eyes. Despite our weak faith, despite our inability to live up to what we should live up to, You still come after us. You still pursue us. God, I pray we would trust you. That we'd hear your spirit whispering to us that you are, we are able to trust you. But that, that same faith that Mary had, that same faith that the spirit gave to Mary, we would be granted and we would say, we trust you. We trust you. We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's children said, amen. Amen, church. Thank you.